this is Erica Hiragami reaching you this week to speak of labor. And now this episode will be broken into two parts. So part A will be released today. Welcome. Part B will be released next week. Apparently I have a lot to say about labor. Now this isn't just about my relationship to labor. This is also about the invisible labor of the arts industries This is also about creative labor in Los Angeles. This is also about brown labor. And I should preface that before becoming a curator, before even becoming an academic, I was one of those people with a nine to five. And I was in publishing, I was in development, and I could go to a place, do work, exit the space, be done with work. But after that model, when I joined the creative industries, The lines got a little blurred, and I'm not saying that everyone in the creative industries has blurred, a blurred concept to their relationship to labor. Some people still have a nine to five in the in the creative industries, but those of us who are creative are creative all day long. That doesn't end when you clock out of the office, which is partly why I'm so happy I'm now in the creative industries. But my relationship to labor changed when I left my nine to five. And when I became an entrepreneur, my relationship to labor changed again. But I digress. Let's let's start at the beginning. Let's start at being an academic. So here I am being an academic and realizing that now the 40 hours I used to spend going into an office to do labor were scattered throughout the day. And so, right, as an undergrad, I would not read in the morning. I had breakfast in the morning like normal people. I do now, too. I just have it after I read. So, in the middle of shifting the way that I did labor, labor became much more demanding and much less noticeable. And that was a model, right? Being an academic demands that your hours are different. And that's fine. Because, right, sometimes classes are in the morning, sometimes classes are at night. You do your homework in the middle of classes, in the middle of the morning, at night, or the weekends. It shifts the way you think of labor. And mindfully, when you're an academic, you don't think that you're working. Yeah, that happens to all of us. Research is not work. Teaching is not work, right? You're so Your life is so invested in in the academic model, that you stop thinking about it as what you do for a living. Mindfully, because you, most academics don't get a paycheck. At the graduate level that I am, I do, but it's also a different model, right? And I did not get through all of what I'm telling you until now, I want to say, that I've had a couple of years to think through this. And this happens to artists, too where sustainability, and I'm not talking about every artist, but sustainability is divorced from their practice, which, by the way, y'all, rethink that. And because there's no consistency in pay, you don't think of art as labor, but it is your job. And in the art world, everyone refutes, artists, artists are the best. And this isn't y'all, this is y'all, not you all y'all. This isn't y'all. This is the art world doing this to you. 
Because you're not allowed to talk about money. Out loud. No one talks about money. Museums hire artists and they bring them into spaces. And the money conversation takes place less than 3% of the time of the project. Um, You know, there's these big commissions out in the public art world that actually demand us all to take a step and realize that there's going to be 80 to 90 people working on a single project and that requires a project manager to discuss logistics and finance that those are unique instances when you go into a gallery you know that there's a 50 50 cut in most occasions and by the way let's not talk about how canalizing that model is and most people don't talk about money other than that But no, y'all, you should be talking about insurance. If you don't know if the gallery has insurance, do not throw your work in there. If you're not covered from door to door, talk to the gallerist. But this isn't about artist labor. And mindfully, if you all need me to discuss artist labor, I will go into that. But this is more about just a relation to labor and labor to capitalism, sadly. So... Needless to say that at the point in which I decided to open my own enterprise, labor became my entire life and I stopped noticing because being an entrepreneur means that you work all day, every day. It's what it means. And I'm not even saying, right, I'm toiling away in some computer doing something But everything you do services your project. So you go out to drinks with, you know, potential networking. That's labor. You go to an exhibition opening because you, as a curator, you need to meet an artist. That's labor. You go to a museum to talk about an exhibition. That's labor. You go to a gallery to meet someone. Labor. You go gallery hopping and that's labor you read about an artist and that's labor you everything you do as an entrepreneur in the art world is labor and i know you all think this and i know you all don't think this because most people don't think about networking as labor because we're creatives and creatives are social butterflies and we're extra birds and that's beautiful But talk to an introvert creative and tell me they don't think of meeting you as labor, right? Some people go through having to mentally and physically prepare to be in a social setting. That's labor. But in the creative realms, the boundaries are super blurred because you play with your friends. And you have 14 conversations before a project. And even though all of that is labor, all of that is unpaid. Think of like, you know, an exhibition at a gallery. Like, you know that there will be a 50-50 split if the art piece sells, if the art piece sells. And that's what you're getting out of it. But the gallery doesn't pay you to, the gallerist doesn't pay you to come to your studio. And that's two or three hours out of your time. And they need to come into your studio so that they can see the artwork that they're putting up in the gallery. They don't pay you for, you know, the time that you're answering the emails. Oh, what is this artwork about? Oh, what kind of snacks do you want during the reception? All of that is a part of your labor that you're not getting compensated with. The way that you're getting compensated 
is ephemeral and potential. Potentially, someone will buy your artwork. Potentially, you will get 50% of that. So all of the labor that you did leading up to that sale is completely invisibilized and removed and uncared for. And nobody even acknowledges that you should be getting paid for someone visiting your um, studio for five hours. And now I'm not saying we should all pay for studio visits. You network and you do and you invite people into your studio and hopefully great projects will come out of that. But I think of... I was I was hearing this from someone, I didn't witness it myself, but one of my friends went to a studio in which there were QR codes at the door and they were taking it back by the QR codes at the door because, you know, we post-COVID, we live in a universe in which we need to QR code everything, right? I went to a restaurant yesterday and the menu was QR coded. Like, no longer will they give me a paper menu because, right, germs and COVID, and now my phone has to do more labor. So... My friend was taking it back at the studio because there were QR codes. And I was like, oh, that's so perfect. In my mind, I was like, you walk into the studio and on the way out, you see the artist statement. You see the works that are available for sale, right? In my in my logical market-driven capitalist curator who has been a gallerist, right, um, mind, I wanted a price list. I was like, oh, my God, if I could walk into a studio... And instead of the artist telling me, here's everything you need to know about my work, I had a checklist of things that were available. I would know immediately what shows I can place all of these works in. And if I can talk to certain collectors to, you know, give them the heads up that this is in their price range versus what happens in studios where artists don't do that. But that wasn't what the QR codes were. The QR codes my friend saw at the studio were the artist being like, hey, Thank you for coming to my studio. I still need to pay the bills and the rent. If you'd like to collaborate to that effort, here's my Venmo. No shame in that game, whomever artist you are. And also, proselytize. It would be the most magical thing on the planet for me as a studio goer if I can come and take up your time. And at the door, there was a QR code that told me how I can assist you financially for taking up your time. Trading and bartering services is my favorite. And I cannot tell you how often I've heard writers and not critics, critics are different, but like people who do essays for catalogs. I've heard this before from a lot of really respectable writers that the artist couldn't, um, didn't have someone to write about their work for the catalog that was coming up. So they traded a painting for their written piece. And the writer was interested because they couldn't afford the piece and the artist was interested because they couldn't afford to have some, to pay someone to write about their work. And if that's a possibility, grow people's collections. You're already making artwork. Pay with artwork. Now, I know that some of you all are like selling paintings at a ridiculous rate and an essay might not be $30,000. But also, I'm not saying give them the $30,000 painting. Find something that's been in your studio for a bit and, you know, trade in that. Boundaries, people. Boundaries. But I think now I'm talking about our relationship to capitalism instead of our relationship to labor. And I want to acknowledge labor. Which I know cannot be divorced from capitalism given that we live in a capitalist society. 
But that said, I think my personal relationship to labor shifted as soon as I became a curator because working in the creative fields means that I work all the time. So yesterday night, as I was walking out of this beautiful gathering, um, an artist in New York hit me up. And yes, Francisco, I am talking about you. Um, And mindfully, New York is three hours ahead and I left the party really late. And I'm not even saying actually late, right? I'm a vintage millennial who's also a night owl, which means that at night I create. So I don't stay out late. But I get this message from the glorious Francisco Donoso, who's like, I know it's Friday night and I know you're out, but let me just tell you about work. And I'm not, no shame in this game. I appreciate that Francisco hits me up all day long. It actually just makes me happy to hear his voice. But also we're working on some killer project together, y'all, that we will tell you about in the future. And you will see come to fruition over the next few months and years. So because we're working on something, we're constantly in communication. And that's labor. (laughs) But, right, the way that he articulated this, I know it's Friday night. I know you're out. Because I told him where I was going. I was like, I hate that you're not here. Like, you would love to be here with me. And in the middle of this, he's like, I'm sorry, I need to talk to you about work at like Friday. And my response was not, yeah, why are you talking to me about work on a Friday night? Let me just live my life. My response was, stop apologizing for talking to me about work because we talk about work all the time. And so, right, I answered this message. And then it dawns on me that both him and I have a very intricate relationship to labor because we love the people that we work with. And that is a blur boundary, right? Because we love each other and the people that we collaborate, we're constantly excited and eager to discuss with them what we're doing. Which means that our projects are taking all of this labor of love, but they're also taking up our energy and we're also working in the most joyous way so i'm not here bashing on the fact that we feel joy while we work i wish that upon everybody because i honestly cannot tell you that after teaching my students researching zooming um writing talking to people about projects all day come nightfall I feel horrible that I worked all day. That is not who I am. I am excited and joyous about all of it, right? And I also think this this goes on to the, the immigrants taking our jobs narratives. I was thinking about that in, and as I was exploring my relationship to labor. There are people in this country who think immigrants are here to take their jobs. And... That's not true. That That's the furthest from the truth. But I also understand how, because this has happened to me, when people meet me, they're like, oh, you're the immigrant who came to took my job. It has happened to me where people have said that. Mindfully, because I keep various many projects, and it sounds like I have 53 jobs. If you read my bio sounds like I don't sleep and I don't eat. 
but that's not my life path. For the better part, I'm just, you know, talking to really great individuals and having hot cocoa over Zoom with people who are brilliant and are holding space for my ideas. And I'm in a classroom where I'm telling the next generations, like, this is how I messed it up. Like, you do better, right? But also, here's the knowledge that I've gathered so far. Go do something with it. So it's it's the main reason why my relationship to labor is so complicated. And it's the main reason why I work a lot. But also, it's not alone, right? There's foundational pillars to my relationship to labor. And yes, one of them is joy, thankfully. But the other one is migration. So we all know, right, in this country that at certain points in our history and our recessions, we've opened the gates so that people can come and work. Think of the braceros in the 1930s. We sent all our people to war, so we asked neighboring countries to come and do the dirty work at home. Not that war isn't dirty, but we opened the gates and people came in to fix our problems. And we got railroads and we had farming, right? And as soon as we were done, we deported them. Yeah, that's that's our way of thanking people. I can't even say it was our way of thanking people in the 30s. It still is. But in the middle of these, you know, batches of requesting help from other countries, and we've done so from China, we've done so from Japan. Contemporarily, we do so more from Mexico than from anywhere else because it's cheaper. Um, and I don't even mean it's cheaper to bring people. It's cheaper labor. So we know, right, by and large, that an enormous chunk of the essential population is comprised of, I'm not even going to say Mexicans, because that's not the case. It's brown. We know that Central Americans also migrate for, you know, Central California's um, farm and harvesting necessities farming and harvesting necessities so we know that we are still today like requesting a ton of people to come in and do labor and we keep them and i know this is going to be intense to hear but the reason why people cannot become citizens and the reason why um deportation exists is capitalism and labor We ask them to come. We pay them nothing. We don't insure them. They can't unionize. And we kick them out. It's very simple. But that cycle makes it so that the other people that work around them work harder so that they won't be deported. And the people who work above them understand that deportability is an issue so people won't fall out of line and people won't unionize and people won't ask for more money and it's a horrible deportable cycle that happens in the lowest echelons of work of many jobs not just this one i'll explain that i recently concluded a report for arts for la 
on undocumented creatives, predominantly in Los Angeles. The report itself will be published in the next couple of months. So I will be telling everyone when this report comes out and sending links everywhere and keep up with my socials is what I'm saying. But in in this report, I got to speak to a lot of different art creatives who are undocumented about their relationships to labor. And all of them had a very unique situation because of their deportability. And all of them were going through these horrendous, you know, circumstances. And I unpack them via testimonio in the report. So trigger warning you all, but also at some point, if you want to know what's happening in the creative industries, read it. Because this is the first report of its nature. So we we know today what's happening with undocumentedness in farming and harvesting, but we don't know what happens with undocumentedness in the art world, which is where I come in, right? That's what I devoted my time to doing. And this is part of the reason why I've been thinking about labor a lot. We all have these relationships to these spaces where we need to make right commodity value and financial gains, but to what expense? Thankfully, and, you know, I'm not going to say luckily because I've worked my ass off to get to where I am. It's, I, I'm at a point in my life in which I find joy in labor. But also, how ridiculous is it that I'm telling you that I'm joyous when I'm at work? I should not be thinking about joy in labor. I should be thinking of joy in my own personal time as opposed to at work. But my capitalist loins managed to blur my labor model so much so that I can't separate it from work, which is also so complicated. And I am talking exclusively about my creative work because as a professor, universities still have a paycheck at the end of the month or the week or the whatever. And that's a more one-on-one Right there's, there's And there's so many boundaries to what you can and can't do in academia that as a professor, I truly understand exactly my, how my energy is used for work. As a creative, it's mush because my energy is constantly being sought out for things that don't appear to be work that ultimately are work for me. And... I'm not going to fault me for making this my life path because this is a this is a beautiful model. If joy is a part of labor, that's a beautiful model. But if I can abstract the joy away from labor, I would 100% and just keep the joy. Why do I need to work? Now, I know we all need to work to make a living and we all need to work to eat. But in the arts industry, we don't think about that, which is why we don't pay our artists. Because we don't. I'm telling you, they're like running a studio is, you know, a, what, 80 hour a week gig. And the way that they get paid is maybe they'll sell their artwork. How sustainable is that? But also... How much invisible labor do they need to do to be, you know, successful in however you want to define success? I'm not 
prescribing success in any capacity because I'm the one that wants to abolish the American dream. And yes, I said that. Why do I need something to tell me that my goals are stupid and that I should be having some very white-defined ideals of what my life should be like? And why do I need to tell that to every person who arrives so that they can assimilate for 20 years and then be unhappy? No. We need to we need to abolish the myth of the American dream, is what I'm saying. But beyond that, I think that we need to be cognizant in the art world that we make a ton of labor invisible. We don't acknowledge that it takes a ton of labor to be creative. And at the end of the day, we don't want to talk about how we need to eat. And I say it this way because we all eat. Some artists, right, have um, intergenerational wealth and they don't need to worry about paying the rent. So I'm not going to point to paying the rent as a thing that unites us all. I'm also not going to point to materials because whereas I understand that art materials are extremely expensive, some artists don't need medium. So I cannot point to medium as the democratizing fashion to think about finance and labor. I think of food because everybody eats and everyone goes to restaurant and everyone needs to go to the grocery store and mindfully going to the grocery store has become one of my most pleasurable moments. I think it has to do with um, the taxonomy of creating a dish. Finding the key ingredients and making it super complicated just makes me happy. I also think it has to do with the curator in me and the professor in me, right? Because if it's not elaborate, it's not aesthetically pleasing. And I that transfers to my culinary skills. But ultimately, I say we all need to eat because if you're a creative, whether or not you have sustainability from your um, labor, you need to eat at the end of the day. And in a world in which we want to pay you with exposure, how do you eat with exposure? How do you eat with likes? How do you eat with the 50% that the gallery kept from yourself? Not your 50%, theirs. Like, how do you eat with that? How do you eat with galleries who, um, what was it, the article in Artnet a couple of days ago that an artist sued their gallery because they kept nearly the entire cell and they wouldn't give the work back and thankfully the artist won but why are we there like how did we get to a point in which we decided to take so much advantage of our artists that our relationship to capitalism becomes more important and I say this from the other side because I'm not an artist I'm also not a gallerist and also I do not believe in the 50-50 model Artists do most of the labor. Artists do most of the work. Artists bring all of the magic into the art field, into the art world, into the art canon. Why do I, as the person who works with an artist, get to keep 50% of all of that glory if I'm not doing 50% of the work? Selling an art piece is not 50% of the work. Especially not if, and I don't do this, I'm saying there are models that out there that are complicated, where the artist has to do the PR and the artist has to invite the people to the exhibition and the artist has to make the press release and the artist has to talk to, you know, the critics. And the artist is expected to do 95% of the labor. 
And here comes the gallery and it's like, let me just take 50% because I, you know, rent this space and I may or may not have insurance and I may or may not have a light bulb and I may or may not know what I'm doing, but 50% of your money is mine. That's a cannibalizing model, which is why thankfully there are artists who are not commercial artists and I love and appreciate you for that. More power to your struggle and I am here to help in any way possible. So hit me up if there's ever a need. But in thinking of this relationship to labor and in my own relationship to labor where I can tell you that when I'm really excited about a project, I'll stay up till three in the morning doing writing, curating, whatever it needs. Because also, right, I'm a night owl. I work better at nights. But for those of you who are morning people, waking up at seven in the morning to be jazzed about something is a lot of work. And it's a lot of labor that we take on. Zooms at 7 in the, at p.m. on a Friday night are labor. You know, going and meeting people about potential projects are labor. And we live in fields in which your time isn't always, I don't want to say paid for, but isn't always financially acknowledged, right? Think of um, proposals. Whenever you're submitting a proposal to someone, no one pays you for the proposal. And you toil away for hours making a proposal. So, as an artist, I mean. And actually, no, as cultural workers who are producing and projecting that they can do these things for entities that may or may not pay for the bill, your time pre-gaming that project is seldom paid. All of you should add all these hours of labor into the budget of the project. Heads up. So, I don't know. I think that in the art world, there's there's this concept of cultural wealth that we all cling to that make it so that we can feel greater and higher and mightier for not being capitalist-driven. And that's how we allow institutions and problematic spaces to get away with murder. Because let us not forget that at the end of the day, museums pay their people very little money. And I don't mean their CEOs because I've seen those paychecks. And I don't mean the president. And I definitely don't mean the COO. I mean docents. And I mean front of the house workers. And I mean maintenance. But also, we make that invisible. There are, there's a fleet of at least hundreds of thousands of people in this country alone, responsible for cleaning museums. When's the last time we ever celebrated that? And when's the last time, you know, you saw a museum saying that first and foremost, they were going to acknowledge the labor done by the people who get paid less in that model. Let us not forget that during COVID, it was a firing frenzy it it was i didn't see a director of a museum step down i saw a couple of them take pay pay cuts which i thought was beautiful though somewhat performative but for the better part the people who suffer the most are the people who make the least money and in a capital society where a ceo or you know a museum director works 40 hours 
and someone in cleaning, the cleaning staff at the museum, or the the shop, or, you know, the docent, or, I don't know, a tour guide also works 40 hours. And at the end of, you know, a broken model or a fracture, the CEO is perfectly fine, or the director is perfectly fine, but not, you know, the museum staff, then we need to unpack a relationship to labor because it's different to labor at the top echelons of the art world than it is to labor in the art world or in the lowest ranks and let's not pretend for a second that we've discovered democracy and equality or equity in any of these spaces because they're outrageously fragmented and they are hierarchical like there's no tomorrow. You know this is true. You walk into a museum and you hear of, you know, the museum director who may or may not, by far and large, still happens to be a middle-aged white guy with a name that most of us cannot pronounce. Mindfully, some are easy, but for the better part, you're like, wait. And it's, right, it's French sometimes. or like German. I don't speak French or German. And I'm not saying there are people on the planet who don't. Um, but you hear about them. And then no one hears about the COO, which is just kind of ridiculous. Like, I want to know what he's doing. Or she or they. And then you hear about the curators because the rock stars of the art world. The education department, even though they engage with the community and they do the heavy lifting and they do the programming... Yeah, they're not as important somehow. The curator had the idea for the painting and to bring the painting, right? The collection specialist went and got the insurance and figured out the shipping or whatever. Mindfully, their intern did. But then the painting gets there and there's another human who will look at everything that the curator did and then figure out how to translate that into actual English for like a four-year-old and then come up with programming where like a kid can doodle the painting and then have a class where the adult can sip a cup of wine and, you know, discuss surrealism or something. And there's all of this educational labor to engage in community and none of that is highlighted or celebrated. When's the last time you wrote an article that thanked a museum educator for their work? How many museum educators' names do you know? Who aren't your friends? I'm pausing so you can think. I have a lot of museum education friends who do great things at very as many museums. And every single time I read about the museum, it's about the curator. Or, you know, the CEO who went and bought himself a new building or it's closing the building to make it three inches taller. Yeah, I'm talking about very problematic museum models. What is it? 50 feet, 50 square feet less than the original plan? Whatever. I'm not even going to go there. That triggers me too much. But what I'm saying is we make people's achievements and accomplishments and labor invisible in the art world all the time. We don't think of people cleaning museums. That that's That doesn't exist. Art worlds, art works are beautifully pristinely kept and no one ever 
drops a pin of trash at the museum floor and the dust bunnies don't exist in white spaces. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. sure, why not? I've seen spider webs at museums. I've been sequestered by museums in rooms where I found a spider. Yeah, they wouldn't let me out of the room. I, it was a, what was it, a Syrian art? I don't know, it was like a really, really, really old stone. And logically, a spider decided to nest. And when I pointed it out to a security guard, in my hopes so that the security guard can speak to the conservator or, you know, figure out the chain of command there to get someone who can actually touch the stone to come and carefully remove a spider web and a spider. No, instead I was asked to not leave the room for about 20 minutes, which made me really cognizant of how beautiful that rock was. So thank you, museum, for giving me that moment, but also... Your chain of command on these matters needs to be greater and better. And I've, this has also happened to me at galleries in the middle of COVID. I would absolutely hate going to galleries to see artwork because artwork was by itself on its own for really long periods of time without people coming in and out. So dust particles gathered in these beautiful, delicious sculptures. And I would no doubt point out you know, and as I was trying to figure out what that was, and if I was looking at the right thing, gallerists would immediately acknowledge that there were spiders. No gallerist ever has acknowledged that, you know, they have a um, maintenance staff to come and clean these spiders. But I want to believe someone's mopping a gallery at some point. And none of that labor is made visible. So I think about these things. And not just about you know, museum maintenance stuff. I also think about gardeners because in it is my understanding that a space like the Getty's landscaping staff overshadows that of their administration capacity. No one talks about the gardeners at the Getty and we've all been to that garden. It's a glorious, beautifully curated, obscenely beautiful space. It, it, it's ridiculously pretty. And it's zen and it's peaceful and there's a waterfall and the colors all coordinate because who's the name of the artist who did it? Don't, don't ask me that. Some white guy. The white guy artist who designed it did a beautiful job in designing it and thank you to him for that. But no one talks about the fact that it takes a fleet of landscapers to give me my curated garden Instagram selfie because that's what it's become sadly. Um, but right, my relationship to labor isn't just me working, even though that is right the the top concern. My relationship to labor is also acknowledging the invisible labor of all of the brown people in the art world. I don't for a moment assume that, even though Los Angeles has predominantly all Latino gardening firms, the Getty has a non brown landscaping specialist staff right so I think about the invisible labor that goes into the curated art universe that is never talked about why aren't museums fundraising for you know positions maintenance positions and gardening positions I know they fundraise by and large to do things but why isn't a giant collector somewhere endowing um you know a muse someone to mop the floor of the museum 
why is that not as swanky and classy and shiny as endowing a building? Why do you need a wall but not a person? Why is it that when they endow a curator, the curator becomes the curator of contemporary blah, blah, endowed by X and Y and Z, and their title is all of a sudden a paragraph? Why can't my landscaper tell me I am endowed by so-and-so? Why can't right the museum the museum maintenance staff be all like you know these 40 people who are cleaning the american wing of whatever are endowed by this fellowship like why don't we have fellowships for people to do blue collar work why why is that not a thing and i logically think about this because i'm an immigrant and because i'm brown and because by and large out side of my white cubes people assume that I'm a part of those industries and I don't mean even me particularly but my sister-in-law had this happen to her where she was on the bus to a university and it was an early ride or something and someone approached her asking her where she worked because, right, our university at UCLA being in the middle of um, Beverly Hills and Bel Air ushers fleets of housekeepers and domestic labor every morning to maintain the pristineness of our environment, who then evacuate our premises later down the path, at like late at night. So because she was coming in with the early shift, instead of anything, they just flat out assumed she was a housekeeper or, you know, she was in domestic labor, a nanny of sorts. I'm not entirely certain this didn't happen to me, but this is something that bothered her. And the way she told me the story, um, it was just it's uncomfortable. So I'm not assuming that that wouldn't happen to me, given, right, that we're similar in an age range and we live in the same kind of community and we're both brown women. And I also when I ever take the bus, because I do take the shuttle to go into campus, I'm the one who sits in the front to talk to the the bus driver in Spanish, and no one even knows her name, and that, to me, is making her labor invisible, and it bothers me that we don't notice all of the people that service us all the time, and we dehumanize them because they're just a service. And I think of, right gardening at museums as a service you cannot take that instagram selfie if someone didn't trim that bush that like you know glorious bougainvillea like if it weren't curated you could not look good on your instagram but do you think of the person who had the time to remove all of the deadness of the bougainvillea so that you could take that selfie probably not and i'm not saying i'm perfect and i'm definitely not saying i'm perfect i am not saying that I acknowledge all of the different labors, but I there's so much more in the creative industries than the people who always get the glory and always get talked about. And I'm not saying that art critics should not be discussing the brilliant exhibitions and celebrating when a new curator got a position, but why am I not applauding 
you know, the undock immigrant worker who got a, a position in staff at a museum. Like, why is that not something that hyperallergic is telling me to celebrate? Because hyperallergic, and I'm, this isn't even about hyperallergic, they do a beautiful job. Um, but Artnet and Art News and the Art Newspaper and all of these, you know, places are always, here's the, the person at the top who got the position and they're leaving this brilliant position to go to this other position. Where is my celebrating that my community is also a part of this field? I wouldn't even care if it were a list of just people and staff at museums. But where's my my think piece about museum staff? And this bothers me in many many reasons, many ways, many shapes. Because museum people who aren't curators and even, you know, the education staff are brilliant. And nobody knows this. So this is where we're pausing this week. And I decided to break this episode into two because speaking of labor and my relationship to labor and the invisible labor in the art industry and brown labor in Los Angeles and labor in, you know, the art world is complicated and there's no possible way that I could achieve that in an hour. So more to come. Portion two of this conversation will be released next week. So until then...